Hear the word of the Lord in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metalworker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you and so do Prudens, Linus, Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Good morning, friends. Shall we pray together? Our Father, we ask that you might address us, that you might bring your word to our hearts, that you might comfort and strengthen us, that you might encourage us and exhort us, that you might move us forward in the weeks and months and years ahead to live as your faithful people. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Final Friday is a great day of celebration every year and it's only just begun. There's more to happen over lunch and this afternoon. We get a chance to be together uh, to celebrate the completion of another academic year at college. For some people, their last academic year at college. We get a chance to celebrate the centre of it all, the salvation that has been won for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, his atoning death, his triumphant resurrection, and his glorious ascension. We get a chance to celebrate the relationships created by the Spirit who unites us to Christ and to each other. 
And it's bittersweet for some of us, I know. For some, this is the day when we begin to move apart from a fellowship that has sustained us for the last one, two, three or four years. That fellowship will continue, of course, but it will have a different rhythm. And we have enjoyed the way it's been and the support and encouragement it's provided over our time here together. What we've learned, how we've lived together, the grace and love and forgiveness that unites us, let's celebrate that all together this morning, over lunch and this afternoon. Final Friday is also a good time to remember what all this has been about, what we've been preparing to do. What, have, what were those long nights all about? What was all that hard work preparing us for? However many tens of thousands of words you've written in the last few years, what have they all been about when summed together? What's the whole exercise been about? Well, many of you here this morning were involved in an apprenticeship in ministry of one kind or another before you came to college. Uh, whether it was called an MTS apprenticeship or a Howie's apprenticeship or something else, someone took you under their wing to help you think about and learn some of the basics of Christian ministry. And if you can remember something like that, however formal or informal it may have been, can you remember the last thing your mentor said to you before sending you off to college? Can you remember those words? It might have been something like, remember it's all about Jesus. Keep that focus clear at all times. Or it might have been something like, keep praying. You'll never be able to do this in your own strength, no matter how skilled or strategic or sound you become. Everything depends upon God in the end. And so you need to pray and you need to keep praying. Or it might have been, don't become so caught up in ideas, in abstractions, that you forget to love the people you serve. People will forgive the mistakes you'll inevitably make if they know that you love them. Now, now each of those are wonderful, wise pieces of advice. And perhaps you heard something like them as you left your apprenticeship and headed off to college. I don't know what the final words were for you. But long before your apprenticeship was even thought of, long before you set your course for college, and certainly long before this day, when some of you are leaving us to move into the life we've been preparing you for over your time here, one of the greatest Christian mentors of all time gave his final charge to his apprentice, knowing that his life was coming to an end and there were things his apprentice just needed to know, had to get clear and keep clear. The Apostle Paul gave himself to proclaiming Christ, to planting churches and to raising up fellow workers wherever he went in the eastern Mediterranean in those decades immediately following Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Whether in Antioch or in Ephesus, Galatia and Colossae, Philippi or Crete or even in Rome itself, Paul gathered those whom he could pass, to whom he could pass on the task that had been entrusted to him. And he built into their lives 
we'd say he trained them in ministry. He prayed for them. He wrote to them. He visited them. He loved them. And none more so than Timothy. The young man we discover in Acts 16 was from Lystra, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer and a Greek man who, it appears, did not believe. In fact, we know from one of Paul's letters to him that his, his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois were both believers, but there's no mention at all of his father. Paul took Timothy with him on his second missionary journey. He sent him as his messenger to Corinth. He mentioned Timothy in a number of his epistles to the churches, and he eventually settled him in Ephesus to complete the work that Paul himself had begun there when he spent two years teaching them the whole counsel of God. Now, you'll know uh, that Paul sent Timothy at least two letters from his imprisonment, letters of encouragement and advice, letters which, while from Christ's apostle to his young Christian apprentice, are the word of God to us. In the first letter, Paul spoke of how to behave in the household of God, the sort of letters and sort of leaders the churches need, how relationships should be properly ordered for the good of each other and the honour of Christ's name. And near the end of the first letter, we find what we might call Paul's first charge to, Tim to Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. It was a charge to live a life worthy of the gospel, to adorn the gospel by his behaviour. The good fight of the faith in this context was to flee ungodliness, to flee conceit and greed, to flee a pugnacious and quarrelsome spirit. Your life matters, Timothy, Paul was saying as he ended that first letter. A little later in the same letter, he counseled, uh, sorry, a little earlier in the same letter, he'd counseled this young man to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. But that was not the last thing that Paul was to say to his apprentice. It's not his last charge to Timothy. That comes in the second letter. And it is that final charge I want to think with you about for just a few minutes this morning. And I didn't know that uh, 2 Timothy 4 was going to be read, but you've already heard it, so I'm going to read it anyway. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfil your ministry. 
for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. It's worth remembering for a moment what was said just before this charge by Paul to the young man to whom he'd entrusted so much. Chapter 3 of this letter had set the scene for Timothy's ministry in the light of a sharp increase in opposition from the world and defection in the church. It's hard to read those verses at the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and not recognise the powerful resonance with our own time. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. They will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That's Sydney in 2018. That's the West in 2018. That's the world in 2018. And in such a context, in the midst of that conflict, that opposition to the gospel from without and that defection from the gospel from within, there is one thing that stands unshaken, one resource that remains powerfully effective. It is the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, verse 15. It is all scripture which is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that is why Paul's final charge takes the shape it does. Because God has given us his scripture, because this is the powerful resource available to us and is still powerful, is still God-breathed, because it really does make a difference to others as it did to the lives of each one of us. That's why the final charge Paul gives is the one he gives in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's fashionable to, uh, to dissect these verses into multiple tasks that Paul is calling on Timothy to do, but I think the closer you look at the paragraph, the more clear it is that there really is just one task that Paul is telling Timothy what to do, how to do it, and why to do it. So let's look at those three things very quickly. What to do. We have a God-breathed scripture. We have the word from God. And Paul is saying to Timothy, don't just hear it. Don't just believe it and obey it. Don't just guard it. Don't just suffer for it. Though you'll need to do all those things. Preach it. Proclaim it. Herald it. Martin Luther famously wrote, you knew I was going to go there sooner or later, didn't you? <laughs> Martin Luther famously wrote, unless the word is preached publicly, it slips away. The more it is preached, the more firmly it is retained. Reading it is not as profitable as hearing it. Satan is not frightened by the written word of God but he flees at the speaking of the word. What he was saying is that preaching is the powerful instrument God uses to penetrate hearts. And take that in the broadest possible sense, proclaiming publicly the word. That is where the word of God is brought home to you. 
That is where the place at which it intersects and interrupts your life is made plain, through a human voice addressed to you. That is how God delights to work. But it's not preaching in some abstract sense that has this power. It is preaching the word. It is heralding, proclaiming what God has to say to us, recorded in scripture, applied by the spirit, but proclaimed by a human voice. Not any word, not my word, but the word, God's word. Proclaim the word. Now, in a world where words are deceiving, where there's so often attempts to manipulate or exercise power over others, used to close off thinking and to silence any opposition, it's not surprising that preaching is devalued. Not just by those outside the churches, but sadly by some inside the churches as well. And tragically, even by some who've taken on the responsibility to be ministers of the word. They look for some other way to affect change, some other way to make an impact. Faithful, engaging preaching of the word is not enough. But Paul's charge to Timothy is that the word must be preached. Not explained, not made relevant, but proclaimed. Pressed home to your own heart and mind and life and then to the heart, mind and life of those who hear. The word of God is preached both as an announcement and as a summons. This is what God has done for you. And you just can't stay the same in the light of what he's done. The word which God has given, this word which Timothy was to preach, the word which we in our various settings are to preach, is meant to disrupt life for good. When the Lord Jesus began his preaching ministry, there were those two elements of announcement and summons were in place, weren't they? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There's something you must be aware of. Something of tremendous import has been done. The turning point in universal history, in God's great, great timetable, it's arrived. God's kingdom has broken into the mundane patterns of everyday life in the life and death and resurrection of this man. And this is so monumental a thing that it changes everything. You cannot stay where you were. You cannot go on trusting those things that you thought up to now were giving you security. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So, when his life was all but over and he had the last chance to communicate with Timothy, Paul wrote, preach the word. He knew that Timothy would come under great pressure not to do that. There would be so many other demands. And it would be hard work. And you will wonder at times whether it really is having an impact. And that is why Paul says, with all the energy left in him, preach the word. But how was Timothy to preach the word in a world like his? 
How is he to keep preaching the word in a world like his? How are we to preach the word? Well, the first clue is in verse 2. By being ready, alert, eager, in season and out of season, when things are going in your favour and when things are not, when it is convenient and when it is not. There is a certain urgency that Paul expects should characterise Timothy's ministry. Yes, it's patient and it involves careful teaching, but it is urgent. Don't just wait around, Timothy. Take every opportunity that comes your way, Timothy. No, more than that, make every opportunity you can, in season and out of season. The word given to Timothy to preach, which is the same word given to us to preach, is a matter of life and death. And so you just can't afford to waste time. Preach the word, but preach it with urgency. The urgency that Paul is talking about should show itself not only in our determination to preach the word, but in the way we preach the word. I think it was Richard Baxter, the English Puritan, the man who wrote the Reformed Pastor, who said, men will not cast away their deepest pleasures upon a drowsy request of one who seems not to mean what he speaks. If we really understand the message we have to bring to people, and if we really believe it, we can't just rehearse it with the same passion with which you'd read a shopping list or a repair manual for your car. The manner must match the message. If this is the most important message in the world, and if this really does matter more than anything you, else that you could say to the people in front of you, then you ought to be clear, that ought to be clear by how you say it. The need in our world is greater than ever before. The danger is as real as ever before. The message of salvation in Christ as our only hope is as true as ever before. So preach the word, but preach it with urgency. And that will mean pointing out the danger, reproving. That will mean challenging the behaviour that brought about the danger in the first place, rebuking. That will mean calling on people to repent and believe, exhorting. The word of God touches the lives of people at different points and in different ways. And at some point it must come as reproof. And at some points it must come as rebuke. And at some points it will come as an exhortation. Preach it as if you mean it, Timothy, Paul is saying. And that is a word as significant for each of us today as it was for Timothy in Paul's time. Know that this word intersects every life now and show them how it does. But Paul goes further on in how to do it in verse 5 with four simple things. Be sober-minded. Keep your head, don't get carried away or distracted. There are real dangers, so be sober-minded. Suffer hardship. After all, the ministry of Paul had involved hardship and suffering. The ministry of the Lord Jesus involved hardship and suffering too. It will come to you too, Timothy. Just a chapter before, Paul had written, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Notice he didn't say, may be persecuted. He didn't say, under certain circumstances, will be persecuted. He didn't say, 
Only if they aren't wise and nuanced and smart about the way they speak will they be persecuted. No, he said simply, clearly, directly, they will be persecuted. Don't be caught by surprise. Count it as something that is part and parcel of walking the same path your Lord and Saviour walked. Thirdly, do the work of an evangelist. And what is that work? What is the nub of it? What does it mean to be an evangelist or do the work of an evangelist? It means right at its heart to point to Jesus. It is that simple, that straightforward. Point people to Jesus. Preach the word and by preaching the word, point people to Jesus. And keep going until the work's done, Timothy. Fulfill your ministry. So that's the charge, the job, the mission. Preach the word. And how's it done? Urgently, engagingly, without distraction, in the face of opposition, just pointing people to Jesus and doing that again and again and again until Jesus returns. When the pressure is on to distract you, to divert you or silence you, keep your head, suffer hardship as I've done, point them to Jesus and keep doing it until the job is done. Well, lastly, then, why? Why preach the word? Why at every opportunity, with passion and energy and perseverance? Well, Paul gives three reasons in this passage, doesn't he? In verse 1, because Jesus had come. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, the presence of Jesus the coming judgment of Jesus, the promised return of Jesus, the glorious kingdom of Jesus, the number one incentive is simply the one who has come and who will come again and before whom we are all accountable. We have been given the gospel word and we are accountable to him for how we've used it. For the king, the judge, is coming. So preach the word. And then in verse 3, because we are in a time of great need. As one writer put it, the harder the times, the louder the opposition, the deafer the people, the clearer, more urgent and more persuasive our preaching must be. No doubt Australia in 2018 is very different from Ephesus in the late first century in many ways. But the most important thing is true in both settings. The gospel is preached at a very difficult moment that has not at all caught God by surprise. We have been given the word that men and women in our time most need to hear. So we mustn't become silent. The need is urgent, so preach the word. And the final of his three reasons is in verse 6. Because the baton has been passed on to you. Paul knew that he was nearing the end of his road. But it was up to Timothy now. Uh, we've had an extraordinary heritage in this city. An extraordinary Christian heritage. In our churches and in this college, great ones have gone before us. Men and women gifted and godly and courageous in their stand for the gospel. But they've moved on and now it's up to us. 
The gospel was faithfully handed on to us and it is our turn now. Catch the ball, run with the ball, pass the ball. That's how one friend sums up gospel ministry, faithful gospel ministry. It's that simple, he says. Catch the ball, run with the ball, pass the ball. And the ball has reached your hands now. So, dear friends, there's Paul's final charge. When he knew this was his last chance, this is the one thing he wanted to get through to Timothy. And this is what God wants to get through to you. Preach the word. Urgently, like you mean it. Whenever you can do it. And preach it because Jesus has come and is coming back. Preach it because it is the one answer to the biggest need of every single person in this city and on this planet. And preach it because the ball has been passed to you now. As our year ends, our academic year at least, for those of us who are leaving today and those who will return for another year next year, may we all hear again Paul's final charge to Timothy and to us. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Will you pray with me? Father, only you are able to enable us to be faithful to this charge. Our hope is only in you. Our only plea is Jesus. And we ask that you might so strengthen us and so keep us focused that at the end of our lives, we might be able to say that we have preached the word in season and out of season. We have pointed people to Jesus and we have rejoiced in seeing people put their trust in him. And this we ask in his name. Amen.